0: Good morning. May it please the court, counsel, Chris Larris, on behalf of Appellant Greco. This case is the first of two challenges before this court today, arising from the city of Minneapolis's unprecedented attempt to impose municipal regulation over private employers throughout the state of Minnesota. More than 45 years ago, the Minnesota legislature passed the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act which provides for payment of minimum wage rates throughout the state of Minnesota. This statute covers every employer and addresses every employee within the state and directs both the extent and the process by which minimum wage rates may be increased. The Minneapolis minimum wage ordinance at issue in this case prohibits employers like Greco from paying the minimum wage rates expressly permitted by the Minnesota legislature. Moreover, the minimum wage uh, ordinance imposes minimum wage rates that escalate for both large and small employers, as those terms are uniquely identified by the city, in ways that conflict with the detailed procedures and limits imposed by the Minnesota legislature. The minimum wage ordinance is invalid for at least two separate reasons. First, it conflicts with state law. And second, it is preempted under the doctrine of implied or field preemption. Appellant Greco requests that the court reverse the the decision of the majority of the panel below and, uh, and hold that the minimum wage ordinance is invalid as preempted. This court has articulated various tests for assessing when a municipal ordinance conflicts with state law. And the most applicable of these provides that a conflict exists where the ordinance forbids what the statute expressly permits. That was first set forth by this court in the Mangold case and has been reaffirmed by this court on numerous occasions, including in Bicking in 2017. The ordinance fails this simple test. Section 177.24, of the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act titled Payment of Minimum Wages expressly sets forth uniform statewide minimum wage rates for all employers. The term wage is expressly defined in the Fair Labor Standards Act as compensation due an employee and payable in legal tender. Subdivisions 1B, one and two of the act expressly set minimum wage rates for both large and small employers, defining those terms based upon the revenue of the employer. And the statute further establishes specific amounts and procedures by, with those, by which those rates may be increased by the commissioner
1: Council, can I just get to the heart of what what is troubling about the case uh, to me? And and that is, what are we to do with the legislature's use of the phrase, at least? I mean, it seems to me that that there isn't a conflict here, because what the state law says is that employers have to pay at least this much. The ordinance says they have to pay more. But by paying more, they're paying at least the state minimum. So... Help me work my way through that, which, which I see as a, a hurdle for your
0: argument. Yes, Chief Judge Gilday, and I appreciate that question. So the, the language, the court must construe this statute according to its plain and ordinary language. And while the language of uh, must pay at least is found within sections 1b, um, 1, 1, and 2, The language of Section 177.24 as a whole makes clear that, in fact, um, the wage rates that are set forth in that statute are authorized by that statute. So we start first with the title of the statute, which governs payment of minimum wages, payment. We go next to the definition of what wage means, amounts that are due and payable if there is no right to make those payments, as the city would narrowly construe this statute, then they would not be wages that would be due and payable. But the statute is even more express here because at least three times in section 177.24, the the legislature expressly described the minimum uh, minimum wages set in that statute as being authorized. The plain and ordinary meaning of authorized is to is permitted. The legislature- well, One so of the things that I find
2: troubling here, counsel, is that in the context of some of these other cases, I mean, whether this is good policy or bad policy, and big debate about that, but I don't see any, you talk about the word authorized, but I don't see any prohibition. Where, you know, we've had some ordinances or some state statutes that say, Localities can continue to legislate in this area. We saw that in the uh, Jenison um, garbage case, and we've seen other places where the legislature has clearly said, Thou shalt not enter here, abandon all hope, be who enter here. It's, I mean, they've made it very clear. You don't have that kind of clarity here, and you've got this at least language. you know I'm, I'm not sure that talking about the statute as authorized overcomes
0: that? What do do we do about that? Well, Justice Anderson, there are certainly many cases this court has addressed which have applied a different uh, form of preemption, which is express preemption. And there are certainly numerous instances in which the legislature chooses to include language in a statute that expressly preempts municipal regulation. It did not do so here. This this court has also addressed numerous cases, and the city relies heavily on numerous cases where the legislature expressly invites local regulation. It did not do that here. But neither of those types of express language are necessary in order for this court to determine that there is conflict preemption or implied preemption. In fact, to the contrary, those doctrines apply where there is a lack of express preemption or express invitation. So here what, what the court must do, and what we're left with is the plain and ordinary meaning of the statute, which provides for, uh, that, that these rates are authorized, and actually goes even further in um, Subdivision 1C to expressly provide that an employer may pay an even lower amount if certain conditions are made are met that language that express language recognizing that these wage rates are authorized recognizing that that and expressly stating that an employer may pay wages that are identified in the statute reflects a, a clear holding that um, that the statute permits the payment of those wages and that's the standard under the test set forth by this court um, and reaffirmed in Bicking. The question is not whether higher wages are prohibited, it's simply whether um, the statute permits certain, expressly permits certain conduct, and when the ordinance prohibits that but conduct.
1: Council, in the area of conflict preemption, um, in Mangold, when we set out prohibits, permits, that, the language that you're relying on, um, isn't the overarching principle really in conflict analysis, whether the ordinance and the state statute are irreconcilable and it's impossible, like it was in Bicking for somebody to comply with both the statute and the uh, charter amendment, which, which, which was proposed in Bicking. I mean, isn't that really the overarching principle? Can you comply with both? And, and here you, you can comply with both again, because of the language, at least in the statute.
0: Well, Your Honor, um, with due respect, I think the court's holding in in Bicking was broader than that type of conflict. Certainly, the court recognized, and the court has held, that there are instances when it is not that a conflict exists if it is not possible to comply with both. But it also has. But but the court that was not the entirety of the court's holding. It set forth multiple tests. And one of those tests, and and it was a test that was reaffirmed in the Bicking case, is that a conflict exists where an ordinance prohibits what a statute expressly permits. That type of prohibition against a more restrictive, a more burdensome municipal regulation is absolutely a type of conflict that's been recognized by this court and applied throughout by the Minnesota courts as well uh, throughout.
3: Counsel, let me ask you kind of a concept question, a rule of law question. Um, When there are two state statutes and somebody says they're in conflict, we've got a lot of black letter law that we try to harmonize them, to give them both effect. Does the same principle apply here when we're considering whether there's an irreconcilable conflict between a state statute and a local ordinance, we should try to read them together so
0: that they don't conflict? no your honor i don't believe so the the statute the, the this court's holding in in Mangold doesn't speak to issues of irreconcilable conflict it sets forth fairly straightforward tests for determining when a conflict exists in this case it wouldn't be possible to read them consistently because you have the state statute authorizing even if this even if your honors decided that that was an attempt to, that you were to make The the state statute um, provides certain rates that are authorized and goes farther. This was not the. I understand your position
3: that there absolutely is a conflict, but I'm, I'm going back one step earlier. Should we try to read both the statute and the ordinance in a fashion
0: that they don't conflict? Would that be a principle of jurisprudence? We don't believe that that's required under this court's holding in, in Bicking or in this court's holdings in Mangold. Okay, what we do, I, sorry. I appreciate your point. Um, let's talk about a
3: possible conflict between two statutes. There's the minimum wage statute, but then there's also Minnesota Statutes 181.13, which deals with penalty for failure to pay wages properly. And it says when a, an employer discharges an employee, the employer has to pay the wages <clears throat> at a rate required by law, including any applicable statute, regulation, rule, or ordinance. Now, yes, Your Honor. Doesn't that, isn't that a signal from the legislature that localities
0: can set required rates of pay for employees? No, Your Honor, it's not. And I'll explain why. First of all, as a general proposition, what is at issue in the test set forth in Bicking is whether there's a conflict between the language of the statute and the language of the ordinance. Signals from the legislature and, and attempts to infer legislative intent from such signals don't control the conflict preemption issue. But secondly, even if it did, the, the statute upon which the amicai relate, this wage theft statute and the ordinance, it simply, simply enshrines that wages that are set by various measures, whether they're set by contract or they're set by ordinance, need to be paid and what we and in our reply brief we've cited to your honors numerous instances in which Minneapolis's own ordinances provide for the payment of certain wages Minneapolis can set by ordinance the amounts that are to be paid by firefighters so we and should read so, the
3: ordinance in 181.13 to mean
0: ordinances not having to do with minimum wage no your honor you should read it as the as as one, is, is that statute providing that any payment, any um, amounts that are wages that are, pay, are due should be paid, regardless of how at those the rate are due. required by law. At, at rates required by law. Including, including by at, ordinance. I'm sorry, Including Art. by ordinance. If the rates for a, a given employee is set by ordinance. It's not an attempt, it's done at, not some backdoor attempt by the legislature to allow municipal minimum wage rate setting. It's simply making the point that if a given employees wages like a firefighter are set by ordinance, then yes, the city has to pay them.
4: Council, uh, sorry, did you have anything else you wanted to add on that? Point? I did not. Okay. Um, the fourth uh, man goal factor in conflict preemption Says it really doesn't matter if they're different as long as uh, they're complementary to or in aid of the the statute. And here we're very lucky because the legislature has specifically st- set out a statement of purpose about why it's passed this minimum wage law, and it's called minimum wage law, um, and that's to maintain workers' health, efficiency, general well-being. And Minneapolis has made a lot of findings about how its ordinance is precisely intended to do that. So um, it seems to me that, uh, do you want to respond to that?
0: I do, and just to clarify, your honor, are you speaking about the the statement of purpose behind the ordinance or the statement of purpose behind the statute?
4: Uh, both, both, because. The, in harmony and that's when we look at the Mangold factors that's specifically one factor that we can consider.
0: It, it, certainly the, it, it, your honor is absolutely correct that the court can consider whether or not an ordinance is complementary to the purposes of the statute. With all due respect the record before this court demonstrates that they're not. The state of Minnesota was very clear, the legislature was very clear in 177.23 when it set forth the purposes behind the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act. Those purposes included providing benefits to employees, but went farther and specifically provided that among the purposes of the state statute was to increase employment opportunities. Consistent with that purpose, the Minnesota legislature set a a maximum increase per year for minimum wage rates, and set a process by which minimum wage rates would be increased in the future or not, depending on statewide economic data and whether or not there was a risk of downturn for employment within the state. That's, with, that's in 177.24 F and G. The city chose to take only part of that legislative purpose. It parrots back half but it expressly ignores the part of the legislative purpose that talked about um, the increasing of employment opportunities and it and it directly conflicts because it ignores the maximum increases and ignores the procedures that are mandated under state law for increasing or not but employment, as minimum the Commissioner
4: wager. notes, that's not a, it's not mandatory for the Commissioner to ever do that. It's a permissive, you know, he, the Commissioner looks at the economic data and then makes a determination, but is not required to do that.
0: Right. The, sta- the, the legislature directs that the, uh, that the Commissioner is to consider this. And so if, if the, the commissioner-, commissioner
4: never does it, there's, there's no
0: conflict. I disagree, Your Honor, and, and, and here would be why. If the commissioner never finds that there's a risk of a downturn in the state economy, minimum wage rates, the legislature nevertheless said minimum wage rates can increase by no more than 2.5% a year. Or the rate of inflation, whichever is less. So it's capping, it's choosing to control the increase. The city, ignoring the full purpose behind the state minimum wage statute, chooses half of it. And I think the, the city itself was actually quite express in, in determining whether or not these two statutes, or, well, I'm sorry, whether the statute and the ordinance are in harmony. Because the city did not undertake to further the legislature's policy. The city, quite to the contrary, took issue with the legislature's policy. And, I, and we've cited, Your Honor, to, um language in the ordinance itself that states that the reason for the ordinance is the perceived, quote, inaction by the federal government on minimum wage. And the plight that the city perceives has resulted from that inaction. This is not a a situation in which an ordinance is seeking to further a legislative purpose. It's It's a situation where the city is trying to usurp and replace its own the legislature's judgment with its own.
3: Council, I'd like to ask you about a hundred-year-old case, one hundred years this year, and it's Markley versus the City of Saint Paul. In that case, the uh, the legislature set up a detailed workers' compensation type compensation system, specifying depending on what your job is how much you get when you're injured. Yes. And then by city charter, there was this, uh, the city of Saint Paul said we're going to pay the firefighters more if they get injured and we said in 1919 that there was no conflict between the two. Isn't that analogous to what we have here, where the state's saying you have to pay X and the city saying yes, but you have to pay X plus Y?
0: I don't believe so, Your Honor, and I, I think and that's... In other words,
3: the state establishes a floor and then the, the city
0: moves up the floor. I don't believe so, Your Honor, and I think there are several reasons for that. First of all, um, one issue is... That, that statute, or that ordinance, excuse me, was was viewed to Actually be- Actually a enough. charter amendment. I apologize. Um, that charter amendment was generally in harmony with the purposes behind the state statute. Which, is, added to, which more. is to pay injured workers. In it, in that case, the it, as the court addressed the purpose of the statute and the purpose of the ordinance, they were viewed to be in harmony. Here, as I said, um, the this, this city makes it very clear that its goals are not in harmony with the legislative purpose in its entirety. Quite to the contrary, what the city wants to do is take half the legislative purpose. It wants to ignore the legislative purpose as expressly stated by the legislature. This court doesn't have to discern legislative purpose behind 177.3 in the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, because the legislature is very express about what that legislative purpose is. And it is not simply to pay certain wage rates to employees. It is also to ensure that there is an increase in employment opportunities, to balance. The legislature was very express We've in got
3: that. the same considerations in workers' comp. The uh, advocates for employees want them paid more. The advocates for employers don't want to pay as much. Why isn't Markley just a simple illustration that when the legislature establishes a floor, a city may raise the floor?
0: Well, with all due respect, Your Honor, I don't believe that there was that clear statement of legislative purpose in the Markley case. And secondly, we don't, we did not have a city that expressed that it was moving, that it was acting, not out of a desire to further the goals set by the legislature, but in express hostility to those goals by saying that the legislature had been inactive, and this caused a plight. This is a much more express example of the did, city did trying say, to substitute its did own... You,
5: did you say the city's ordinance talked about the federal government not acting? I thought that's what you said. It, it, actually,
0: Your Honor, talked about both. Okay, I, you city. had just mentioned the federal I'm government. I'm sorry, really. okay. I may have misspoke. So what the city said, and this is in the city's ordinance at Section 40.320D, it refers to the city's perception of a quote inaction by the, um, the federal and state governments on minimum wage and that that inaction has quote led to a plight of um, tens of thousands of low-wage workers again oh. that that policy could that is- could
5: that be related to the fact that the costs in the city are higher than other places it may which it would, may. Would, would would make it consistent right with with the state statute not to setting aside your your argument about um, about em, employment opportunities declining or being hindered by a higher minimum wage which I think is debatable but is a policy issue um, the city was actually acting inconsistently because of the citizens of their city having to face higher costs of living higher housing costs higher
0: different things, and so they need a higher wage. Justice the city came to that conclusion, but it did so in direct contravention of the policy that underlies the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act. It's important to note and, and the city makes reference what, specifically what is that policy? Maybe that's what I'm looking that, for. Very good, Your Honor. That, that policy is to balance, to focus not only on the needs of employees, but to balance expressly um, on the need to increase employment opportunities. That's the policy and decision. So, how
5: how is increasing employment opportunities not benefiting employees?
0: The payment of the payment of higher wage. The legislature recognized, and this is enshrined in, in uh, Section One, Subdivision One G. The legislature recognized that simply increasing minimum wage rates could have an, a a negative impact on the desire to increase employment opportunities when there's a downturn in the state economy. And that's why the legislature did not simply set minimum wage rates at one static point in time in its most recent enactment of the, or most recent amendment of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Rather it set in place an express a process by which those rates are to increase. But doesn't that
5: all come back to the Chief Justice's initial question? doesn't it beg the question of it's setting something that's at least an amount. And so they, from the state's perspective, they can look at the whole state and say, we're worried about economic conditions. But if it's at setting something that's at least, then the city can make a separate decision from that to go higher because of the conditions in that, in the particular city. That's where, that's, I guess, the, I guess I keep coming back to the chief's
0: Initial argument about why at least doesn't decide this case, Your, and, and Your Honor, and I recognize the relationship between the two. The the reason is is because the plain language of the statute makes clear that in fact employers are permitted to pay the amounts that are that the legislature described as authorized, and that the legislature expressly said that an employer may pay. That permissive language is, ex, is very expressed in the statute. And, and significantly, as Judge Johnson recognized, the panel majority below failed to even address that indisputedly permissive language. That's Judge Johnson's observation. It, the, the issue is not one of, um, of com- simply competing policies here. The test set forth in, and reaffirmed in Bicking is simply whether the ordinance prohibits what the statute expressly permits, and employers are permitted, authorized to make those payments.
2: Counsel, your time has expired, but Justice Hudson has a question. Yes, Council, I just want to back up to another point that the chief made talking about the, the overarching principle in Mangold seemed to be, can we reconcile these provisions? And you, you and she had the discussion about bicking, and it seems to me in bicking you had you know, clearly an ordinance um, or a, a charter amendment uh, that was not reconcilable at all. With uh, with the statute in question, but you seem to suggest to the chief that 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 was reading Bicking too narrowly, and I'm trying to get a sense of where what language is it in Bicking? Could you point me to that language that you think um, is broader than what seems to me to be the clear holding of Bicking? Where where are you looking?
0: Well, thank you for that question because I think Bicking does make clear that and or in this. in in Bicking, this court found a conflict, even though it was technically possible to comply with both the ordinance and the statute. In fact, that was one of the arguments that the appellant made in Bicking, that there was no conflict because it was technically possible to apply with both. And I would cite uh, your honor to to page 315 of that Bicking decision, which addressed the issue that the proposed amendment did not preclude the city from procuring insurance. You had a statute that re, that um, would would require the, uh, the this would the the charter amendment at issue there, or the the proposed municipal action at issue there, would require the obtaining of insurance, and the court recon- and and the. City was arguing that there was a conflict and the appellant argued there was no conflict because it was possible that you could comply with the statute and therefore the municipal action and and obtain insurance, but nevertheless not violate the statute. And the court instead, this court, looked to the practical impact and said there was a conflict, despite the fact that it was possible to comply with both the requirement of the statute and the requirement of the ordinance.
1: Thank you, Mr. 315. Thank you, your Honor. you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Ms. Siegel.
6: Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Susan Siegel, and I am the city attorney for the city of Minneapolis. It is fitting that the two cases you have in your docket this morning are here being heard in this historic Supreme Court chamber. Because the two cases are of potential historic significance. What is at stake here is the existing balance of authority between the state and municipalities. If the court were to accept Graco's arguments, the court would not only be breaking with its own precedent, but would dramatically restrict the ability of cities to govern, requiring municipalities to get legislative permission before being able to act on any subject on which there might be state legislation. That is not the law, and that is not what two courts, the District Court and the Court of Appeals, held below. Preserving the balance of authority between local and the lo- local governments and the state will be preserving local powers, police powers, so that cities like Minneapolis can continue to be responsive to the particular needs of its uh, people. And preserving that balance is important to the different, many different regions uh, of our state, whether it be a town in northern Minnesota How or- does,
1: how does um, telling employers who don't operate in Minneapolis, um, how much money they have to pay their employees when those employees don't live in Minneapolis. How, how does that direction from the city of Minneapolis consistent with the policy goals you're articulating?
6: The policy of the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, as Justice Trudich pointed out, is set out in the statute, and that's to preserve the health and well-being of workers.
1: Right, and but the, the city, city of
6: Minneapolis is saying, we got to take care of our people. It
1: costs a lot of money to live in Minneapolis, and so we got to make sure that the people who live in Minneapolis have a living wage. But this ordinance does much more than that. It says to employers who are based in North Dakota, um, if you have employees who live in North Dakota, but they come into Minneapolis to work, you got to pay them a higher wage. How is that consistent with this policy of protecting
6: people who live in the city of Minneapolis? A second purpose set out in the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act is to prevent the undercutting of wages. So if the city did not, if it applied its minimum wage ordinance only to workers who also reside in the city, then... Employers from outside the city could come in and undercut our own residents. And that is directly in conflict with one of the three stated purposes set out in the introduction of the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act. So it needs to be the way it is. Um, And and as the court knows, this issue of extraterritoriality is not at issue in this case. The The ordinance applies only to work performed within the city of Minneapolis, and Minneapolis set out in this ordinance to address a pressing need. Minneapolis, as the court has already noted, has one of the highest costs of living in the state, and yet 48% of the workers in the city make less than a living wage. Minneapolis passed this ordinance only after extensive research, economic, market, and health studies, testimony, and many opportunities for public input and engagement. As the courts noted, there are only two issues before the court today, conflict and implied preemption. So turning first to the question of whether there is a conflict, there has to be a conflict. That's the general rule set out in Mangold, that there has to be Irreconcilable differences, and here uh, employers can comply with both the city minimum wage as well as state law. Uh, Greco and the dissent at the Court of Appeals argue that the state minimum wage provision gives employers a right not to pay more, but Mangold itself, which Greco cites as the applicable standard, specifically states that it is not a conflict. This is. The, the last sentence in the Mingle test, it is not a conflict for an ordinance to add to a statute if that provision is complementary and in furtherance of the statute.
2: Council, could,
4: could I just ask you about the, the one area that council earlier identified as a conflict, and that's with the power of the commissioner to suspend a yearly rate increases when economic conditions require that?
6: Um, Yes, first of all, that applies just to the state inflationary increase. And the city of Minneapolis ordinance in 40.450 requires an annual uh, market and economic impact study beginning this year. The city has retained our district of the Federal Reserve Bank to undertake that study. It's required as an annual report to the city council. to determine the economic local impact, what is happening in the Minneapolis economy as a result of this ordinance. Our city council is a full-time legislative body and they can quickly adjust to local market conditions. And so there is no conflict between those two provisions at all. And the city of Minneapolis has in fact um, uh, 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 allowed and provided for Uh, getting annual information on that very question as it applies to the Minneapolis economy. Council, let's
3: assume that that particular provision of state law would in fact conflict. That is, in an economic downturn, the commissioner wants to suspend the minimum wage. Let's assume there's a conflict. Uh, Would we need to reach that issue or invalidate the entire minimum, minimum wage ordinance? based on that purported conflict? And I realize you argue there is none, but let's assume there is.
6: Uh, no, of course not, Your Honor. Uh, this is a preemptive lawsuit. There is not an enforcement action against Greco, And so at a further point in time, if a business came before uh, the courts and said because the the city has not suspended its inflationary rate, we're going out of business, and that violates substantive due process, that certainly is an issue that the court could take up at a later time.
3: Oh, counsel, as long as I've got you. Um, uh, 100 years ago, the Markley case was argued, presumably in this courtroom, and it had to do with the setting of workers' compensation rates for different uh, jobs. And then the city of St. Paul passes a charter amendment and says, we're gonna have a higher floor, a higher compensation rate for firefighters. Uh, how relevant is that, is that case?
6: I, I think it is relevant. As a former history major, I found it very interesting going back that, that the state's workers' compensation statute, which is viewed as a comprehensive and exclusive scheme um, for worker-related injuries, that the court in that case Said that doesn't mean that this local government, the city of St. Paul, uh, can't provide more for its firefighters. And so I think it is relevant and a good precedent uh, to look at. And comparing that to the Bicking case, um, where the argument there was well, uh, a provision was uh, added, this, the, the, the uh, um, Appellant argued that that a provision was added, just, well, they also have to get private insurance. There was a direct conflict. It was not a complementary provision. Um, It directly conflicted with very clear state law imposing a duty on public local governments to defend and indemnify um, their employees. And and so there's just as a direct conflict there Even though the language doesn't also say it's additional and conflicting in the actual uh, wording of the opinion. But that is in fact uh, what happened in that case. Um, The dissent and Greco argue uh, that the Court of Appeals erred in terming the Minnesota uh, the minimum wage provision. A law, a, a prohibition, but that's exactly what it is. It says you cannot pay below um, this level, and that's the first prong of the test. It's not a novel creation that the court of appeals came up with. It is simply, it was simply a way for the court to decide: is it the second or the third part, the first or second part of of the Mangold um, test, and figuring out whether there is an irreconcilable. Um, difference. But whichever prong is applied, whether it's permitting, forbidding, forbidding, permitting, um, the result is the same. Because Greco says the word express, but they ignore its meaning. And the word express in the, the second part of the Mangold test um, that does the, the local ordinance forbid what the state statute expressly permits. There was a capital E in the Mangold case and this court in Bicking put the word express in italics and that's critical and important uh, to the analysis. There is- but at
1: some level here, I mean, the, the statute does expressly say that employers can pay this much. I mean, it authorizes employers to pay a lower amount. So at some level, there's some merit to to Graco's argument, I suppose your position is the overarching principle in Mangold is they have to be reconcilable, and here they're not reconcilable because of the use of at least
6: in Mangold, which um, uh, is the accepted standard, specifically states that there is no conflict when the, the local ordinance adds. A a provision that is complementary. So So you do have to.
1: That's what I'm getting to. I mean, your your argument is that that we've got these that they're not really four separate tests in Mangold. The the last test is really the one that matters. Is it complementary or are they irreconcilable?
6: The actual test is the general rule, which is. Are there irreconcilable? And the other three provisions help you figure out whether there's an e- irreconcilable difference. Thank you, Your Honor, for that clarification.
3: Counsel, I'd like to ask you for the methodology for determining whether a statute and ordinance are irreconcilable or complementary. Um, it's You've made the argument, the city's made the argument in, in its brief that we essentially apply the same kind of rule that we apply when we're talking about two different state statutes. We, we try to read them in harmony with one another. Um, but I, I, I think that makes sense in comparing a state statute and a local ordinance, but I haven't been able to find any Minnesota Supreme Court law supporting that kind of presumption that the two are both valid and can be read in harmony with one another. Have you, and I didn't see any in, your, uh, in the city's brief, um, it, it seems logical, but can you give us some support for it?
6: There is a case law from this court talking about a presumption of validity for local, uh.
3: Yeah, but that's not really the, the presumption. I mean, we, of course, the ordinance is, is valid as far as being legitimately passed and in full force and effect. The question though is, is it complimentary or irreconcilable? And I, I would assume we try to read the ordinance and the statute in harmony, but I don't, do you have any law to that effect?
6: I don't believe we have a, uh, a specific quote from a case uh, to cite to you. Um, it would be great if you would include that in your opinion in this case, and then we could cite to this case. Um, but that certainly uh, is consistent with, with the principles um, uh, city councils are legislative bodies. Um, there is, and the court has talked about, a presumption of validity. And I'd say the very uh, test in Mangold provides that to some extent. If it's additional and complementary, it should be upheld. And uh, I would say Minnesota statutes 410.07 that sets out. Uh, the authority of home rule charter cities says that the uh, home rule charter cities have the same authority as the state legislature in passing legislation related to matters of municipal concern so i would cite to the language of that legislation as well in support of that concept
2: does Council, the- I wonder about, though, this presumption of validity. And maybe I'm getting, it seems to me you make that argument a little bit more strongly in, in the next case. But, but the fact that you raise it here is, is concerning. Because the cases you cite, I think, as uh, Mr. Laris points out, um, I'm not sure they stand for that proposition, uh, Benson Hotel um, and, and the like. Um, it does seem to me instead that we've already rejected the idea that police powers uh, can redeem and inv- if the ordinance is invalid. So I guess I'm just wondering where, where you get this idea of a, there's, that there's a presumption of validity. I'm just not sure that's borne out by the cases you cite.
6: Well, the, the city of St. Paul v. Clark specifically says that, that there is a presumption of validity. Now that's dealing, it specifically says, in favor of the constitutionality. Um, and then State v. Daly which is the case dealing with a Minneapolis ordinance, uh, creating a broader uh, uh, prohibition of prostitution than the state criminal statute. Um, also maybe this, point, that. That Clark, hmm? maybe this is a minor point, but does it matter that Clark,
2: maybe this is a minor point and we can move on, but does it matter that Clark was in the context of whether or not it came, the ordinance came within the city's police powers? That that's what Clark was more about. Um, that's a great uh, question, Justice. Uh,
6: but if it's not within our police powers or we haven't been specifically um, authorized by the state legislature to undertake an act, then we lack the authority. So it, it has to be within our police powers. So that's why I would say that that doesn't really mean that it, that it doesn't provide a presumption of validity. Does
5: the... Um Does the preemption article or provision in the ordinance have any bearing on this? I mean, it basically says this shouldn't be interpreted in a way that uh, um, creates a power and duty in conflict with federal or state law. And I'm particularly thinking of this issue with regard to what the commissioner's authority is. Does that preemption provision, because that issue is really specifically at issue in this case, but does that preemption provision have any bearing on how we should be looking at this? That, that the city kind of reserved the fact that if there is a conflict, it's not gonna get rid of everything, but it has to be applied in a way that's consistent?
6: Your Honor, uh, I, I agree with you that, that it should. So if there is an actual conflict between one or the other, obviously state law um, applies. And the rest, and if this court were to find that there was a conflict between a specific provision um, and state law, Uh, then the rest of the ordinance should still be enforced as as written and valid as written, um, I would say. Uh, Turning to the question of implied preemption, um, under this theory, the court is tasked with seeking to divine legislative intent. And here the courts have set, and rightfully so, (coughs) a very high standard for challengers to meet before the court will limit local authority. And this is appropriate because the court is being asked to step in and impose preemption when the legislature itself has not included a preemption provision in the legislation. And so at the risk of overstepping its judicial boundaries and intruding on the legislative branch, the court must tread with particular caution in dealing with claims of implied preemption. Council, can you
1: help me? Um, So we have, in a way, two overarching principles of law that that seemingly conflict. Um, So we have a principle that municipalities have only the authority the legislature gives, the legislature or the constitution gives to them. But then we have this principle that if there's gonna be field preemption, it's a it's a really high standard and the legislature has to say so um, pretty clearly in daily. we talked about that. Now there's an argument about whether is express preemption or field, but in any event, those two, pr- I mean, in one principle, the, leg- the the city doesn't have it unless the legislature gives it to them. And in the, the other principle, you're sort of doing the opposite. So can you help me figure out how we can reconcile those two,
6: uh, overarching principles as applied here? So let's assume that that there is no conflict here. Then the question is, uh, has the legislature through this scheme um, so occupied the field that it would, um, I mean, in the last uh, factor, the Mangold test for implied preemption, um, unreasonably have an adverse impact on the general populace of the state. And so where the court has stepped in, it's been in, in uh, situations like the traffic regulation uh, cases where the traffic statutes say it should be uniform throughout the state and where individuals in the state, it would cause uh, significant confusion and frustration. Same thing with boat licenses, because boats travel on trailers from lake to lake and. There are a lot of lakes that are not within one municipality or another. And so that's another area where the court um, has, has stepped in um, uh, to find preemption or the forfeiture laws. Um, where having one very, you could lose your car in one city, but you go another mile and you're not subject to forfeiture of your car in the next city. Where it would cause widespread uh, problems, confusion, frustration among the general populace of the state, to use the Mangold uh, language. And there is some clear language in the statute guiding the court, uh, saying that that really was the intent, while it didn't specifically say, and no city uh, can pass any traffic regulation. Um, I, I, I hope that is, that is helpful. In, in Let me try my question again because I don't think I was clear.
1: So the first proposition that municipalities only have the authority the legislature gives them expressly, sort of the default position of that, uh, that line of authority would be the city can't act. But the other principle that we can only find the legislatures clearly occupied the field if they, if they say so in pretty clear language, the default position there is the city can act. So those two default positions, that's really what I'm getting at. They conflict, and I'm trying to figure out how we can give effect to both of them in this case, and maybe we can't, but that's really the question.
6: Um, Madam Chief Justice, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, I understand. If there's express preemption, then we obviously cannot act. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, The police powers of municipalities are quite broad.
5: The chief post?
6: But there are cases where the court has seen fit to step in. There are not a lot of them. um, Because the legislature certainly knows how to expressly preempt local regulation. Thank thank you for helping me out here, um, Justice, in understanding the question. I I would say absolutely when it comes to those kinds of provisions, given that the the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is much broader, minimum wage is one section, 177.24. And the subject matter, everybody agrees for the implied preemption analysis, is minimum wage. And the Fair Labor Standards Act is, is you know, um, a broad uh, edict, but it is all geared towards protecting individual employees, not protecting employers from paying livable wages to its employees. And that's true of Minnesota chapter 181 um, as well. That's the whole impetus um, of, of that statute. And so um, uh, with complementary local provisions working in the same direction to try to protect and strengthen workers whose earnings have been eroded in our economy is certainly consistent with that and should be and we believe clearly is within the police powers of the city of Minneapolis and other Home Rule Charter cities. Um, And this court in Jenison is is the most recent opinion from this court on this issue of implied preemption. And in Jenison, uh, it involved the solid waste collection statute, which again, is a very detailed, some might say comprehensive scheme for how you go about organizing uh, waste collection. Um, I'm glad this, I haven't had to deal with that personally too often in the city of Minneapolis, but it seems to be quite a divisive issue these days. Um, and the court there found no field preemption uh, in the solid waste collection statute because the court, the court analyzed that the step that the citizen petition for a charter amendment was seeking was a voter referendum which was a preliminary step in the process. And the court also looked to language, the same kind of language that exists in 177.24, wordings such as um, it may include uh, um, at a minimum must have four members of this commission or another. And so it's that very same kind of wording that appears in 177.24. You must permit uh, pay at least um, the rate. And so we would say that Jenison provides strong support for the city's position um, in this case. Council, Um, your red light's on. Do you wanna sum up your red light's on? Oh, my red light's on? Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Honest, for undertaking this case. And again, um, we believe the state minimum wage section was intended to protect workers, not to protect the right of employers to pay lower wages. Thank you,
1: counsel. Uh, Mr. Laris, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
0: The city argues that affirmance of the, district, of the majority panel decision below is necessary in order to protect historic norms of governance by municipalities. With all due respect, it's clearly not the case. The city's attempt to regulate mun- uh, municipal minimum wages is unprecedented in this state. The city also attempts to um, narrowly construe the purpose behind the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act as protecting the interest of workers. Again, the record before this court is to the contrary. The record before this court is that, that while that may be one of the purposes, the legislature was very express about the balance with other purposes.
3: All right, I, uh, you, this is the second time you've argued the balance point, And I've taken a look at the statute that Justice Cudich mm-hmm. cited with regards to purpose and there are three purposes, and it looks to me like all of them are in favor of employees. Um, can you focus on the third purpose that refers to employment opportunities? Because it, it's not clear to me in the context that that's talking about employment opportunities for employers.
0: Well, If
4: I may add a friendly amendment, especially yes. when it, it starts to sustain purchasing power, which is clearly to help employees be able to buy things that our economy would like them to buy.
0: Sure, and it's only possible to make those purchases and have the wages that are doing owing if in fact there are jobs to be had. And that's why the, the legislature expressly recognized that in, when there is a downturn in the state economy, it was appropriate not to increase minimum wage rates. That's the balancing. It, they might all go, it's, it's not about protecting employers, but it's recognizing the economic reality that when, when there is a downturn in the economy, when statewide uh, economic data suggests to the commissioner a downturn in the economy, raising minimum wage rates is not in the interests of the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act. Nevertheless, the city ignores that. The city literally T- excises out that third purpose that Justice Lillehug referred to and ignores it in its ordinance and wants to instead focus only on half of those per- two of those three purposes. Significantly, the, the, Minneapolis, the Minnesota legislature, when it enacted the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act, made a choice to have statewide standards. The city, consistent with its effort to focus solely on the goal of raising rates, cites to uh, this court's decision in Holland versus Palmish from the 1960s. and talked about this, the, the purpose behind that act. That was not the Minnesota Fair Labor Standards Act. Quite to the contrary, that was a different act that provided for the uh, minimum wages and expressly provided that those minimum wages could differ by region. That was the act that was in place and was addressed in the Holland versus Palmish case. The Minnesota legislature, when it enacted the Fair Labor Standards Act, rejected that type of regional approach to the setting of minimum wage rates in favor of a statewide approach and making clear that the balance between the interests that I've described, would be made based on statewide economic data. Council. I'd like to go
3: back to the question of the methodology for determining whether a statute and ordinance are irreconcilable or complementary. Um, Ms. Siegel didn't exactly have uh, support for the idea that the local ordinance is entitled to a presumption of non-conflict, but she did cite the Daly case from 1969, so that's exactly 50 years ago. And that says that for there to be preemption, the legislature should manifest its preemptive intent in the clearest terms. Now, the Chief Justice is exactly right that it's not clear whether they're talking about field preemption or conflict preemption. But is it, doesn't the Daly case suggest that we take the ordinance and the statute and we try to read them together to, in a complementary fashion?
0: Um, Your Honor, we, it, are, it is our view that that language in Daly was talking about implied preemption, um, and and but even if, in even, other words, field preemption. Field preemption. Yes, I'm sorry. Field, field preemption is being a synonym for implied preemption. Even if there was a, a desire by the court to try to harmonize, that doesn't lead to the conclusion that the city would have. The city would argue, and I believe uh, my friend just said it that. It, there is no conflict if it is possible to comply with both. That there cannot be a conflict if it is, impo- if it is possible to comply with the ordinance and the statute. This court has rejected that reasoning soundly. Um, and so have other courts of appeals uh, in this state. So specifically, and I apologize, okay, I'm going to circle it, back to I, my...
3: I apologize for interrupting, but let's get back to Daly. Okay. Let's assume it applies only to field preemption. What did the legislature do to manifest its preemptive intent in the clearest terms in connection with
0: minimum wage? So in in connection with minimum wage, it regulated the topic um, to the fullest possible extent, covering literally every employer in the state and expressly uh, addressing every employee within the state. Second, it specifically talked about the... um, the rates that were authorized by that statute. And then it went farther, because rather than simply having a regulatory scheme that applied at one point in time, as it had done when it amended the Fair Labor Standards Act nine separate times, it put in place a comprehensive system by which minimum wage rates would increase over time. It capped the amount of that increase so that it would, uh, to either 2.5%- But Council, I,
1: I'm just having trouble getting past the, the May and the floor, and I think you just indicated that they cap what it would have to, what it would have to be. But I'm just not seeing where that ties into where a city is, is disallowed from increasing it, even using all of the language and, and the scheme that you're speaking of. I just can't get past that point.
0: Well, just anything that
1: you can tell me to help me?
0: I'll do my best, Justice McKee. Um, The the question of conflict, as set forth, is is whether the statute permits the payment of the wages. That is the ultimate, that is the issue on which there's debate. There's no doubt that if that's true, the ordinance prevents it. The question is, does the Minnesota Fair Labor Standard Act allow an employer, permit an employer, to pay those rates? Well, it expressly, uh, we agree with Chief Justice Gilday, it, it does. The express language of the statute refers to those rates as being authorized. Authorized means permitted. They're, they're direct synonyms, right out of the dictionary. In addition, the statute goes farther and actually has language that, with respect to one of the rates identified, and says that employer may pay the stated rate. It's hard for me to imagine a more express. Assertion of permission from the legislature than saying that they may. In fact, the canons of construction in chapter 645 expressly say, describe may as being permissive. The city wants to circumscribe the entirety of Mangold to a single test, which is that there can be no conflict. Unless it is impossible to comply with both an ordinance and a statute. That is not the test. That would allow any ordinance to be more restrictive. And this court has expressly rejected that on numerous occasions. So I, your, your rule of law is that
5: as long as the legislature permits something to happen, then no city can act on anything. I mean, it would be beyond minimum wage, right? That, but if we're going to state a general rule of law that I'm trying to interpret from what you're saying, cities can't act to do anything if the
0: legislature's passed a statute that permits people to do something. It, not necessarily, Justice season So there, would be, there are well-recognized exceptions. There are situations where the legislature invites local participation. That happens a lot.
5: Not here. Either there's express preemption or, I mean, either express forbidding or express it's, permitting. So, but that's not this case. A so, in an implied, if, if the legislature doesn't do either of those things, then the baseline rule you're articulating or you're arguing for is that if there's an indication the legislature is permitting something to do someone permitting someone to do something,
0: then cities can't act. There would be another well recognized exception, and that's where the ordinance is complementary to the purposes of the of the statute. For the reasons I've said, that's not applicable here because the city is not trying to complement the legislature's uh, policy decisions, the city is trying to replace them. It is taking issue, it's expressly stating that its purposes behind this statute don't comport with all of the purposes behind the Fair Labor Standards Act, and that that it's taking this action because it believes the legislature has been ineffective. But But that's a conflict. Uh, but
5: you're, I'm, I guess I'm coming to the field preemption piece of this, your argument, which it, we, it seems we're kind of floating back and forth between the two arguments. But, but I'm trying to understand your rule for field preemption. And that rule is that if it's permitted, the cities can't act. Or if there's language, if there's permitted. No. Wait, I,
0: I'm can, I, I guess okay, we kind I'm of sorry. float back and forth between the two preemption oh. arguments here. I'll try to be more clear. The issue about whether conduct is permitted by the statute, we believe, is most clearly applicable to the issue of conflict. And this idea that there is no conflict if you can do both was rejected in Bicking. It was rejected in um, in, uh, in Quinn versus Ford Motor Company, where it's undisputedly possible to comply with both the ordinance and the um, statute. It was rejected by the Court of Appeals in Northwest Residence and in Apple Valley, both cases that dealt with situations where it's undisputedly possible to, for someone to comply with both the statute, what was permitted by the statute, and what was um, more restrictively regulated by the ordinance. In each of those four cases, two of which are out of this court, that that claim was rejected
1: thank you counsel your red lights on thank you your Honor. thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case this matter is submitted we'll issue an opinion in due course I'll